Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 197, Fist of Legend, part 4. On November 10th, 1868, only 15 days after the city of Edo was officially renamed Tokyo, and all of six days after the beleaguered armies of Aizu Domain surrendered their last holdout in Wakamatsu Castle, with Yamakawa Stematsu, among others, being taken prisoner, a boy was born to a family in the capital of the Ryukyuan kingdom, Shuri. The boy was born to the Funakoshi family, a family of what's called Pechin status. The Pechin were a part of the Okinawan aristocracy, broadly analogous to the sure scholars of China or to mid-ranking samurai in Japan. They formed the backbone of the government administration, serving in a variety of roles in the bureaucracy. Their status, in turn, enabled Pechin families to enjoy certain perks, including the right to be waited on by a servant in public and to be exempted from certain kind of taxes and punishments. Unfortunately for this boy, his birth happened to coincide with the end of the traditional Ryukyuan system, which had privileged his family for centuries. When he was 11, the Ryukyuan kingdom was annexed by Japan, and the Funakoshi family's lives were turned upside down. The boy's father, Funakoshi Gisu, was a traditionalist who objected fiercely to the new order of things. As a result, he fought against the change brought by the Japanese, who wanted to both westernize and Japanize the Okinawan population. So, for example, Gisu insisted that his young son wear the topknot hairstyle associated with the Pechin class, which had been banned by the Japanese. That, in turn, meant that the young man could not pursue his first dream of attending medical school. A Japanese-run medical school, after all, literally would not even let him through the front door with his hair styled like that, even if, as was the case with this young man, he'd passed the grueling exams required to become a medical student. And so it was that young Funakoshi Gichin was forced to find another path. Instead, he went to a far less prestigious but far less restrictive normal school, which is a fancy way of saying a college that trains teachers for a living. Rather than becoming a doctor, Funakoshi Gichin ended up with a job near and dear to my own heart. He became a high school teacher. Much like Kano Jigoro, young Funakoshi Gichin was a small and somewhat feeble man who wanted to be stronger, and much like Kano Jigoro, he got his chance. As fate would have it, when Funakoshi Gichin was still in primary school, he met the child of Azato Anko, who had been an instructor in unarmed combat under the old regime. Seeing some promise in the young lad, Azato offered to train him secretly at night. For training in the Okinawan martial arts, or any part of traditional Okinawan culture, was forbidden as part of the Japanization program introduced by the Meiji government. Azato also introduced young Funakoshi Gichin to a personal friend and fellow practitioner named Itosu Anko and briefly to his own teacher, Matsumura Sokun, the man who helped create the Shurite style of karate. Funakoshi Gichin took well to all of his instructors and proved himself an enormously adept student. He even met his wife through those instructors. 
Azato and Itosu were, like Funakoshi Gichin's father, traditionalists. They did not just teach him martial techniques, but the classics of Chinese literature and philosophy that had been the hallmarks of education for aristocrats of the old Ryukyuan kingdom. Funakoshi ate it all up, proving to be as adept with Confucius, Mencius, and Jushi as he had been with kicks, punches, and throws. Yet it took until 1901 for the Japanese ban on practices associated with traditional Okinawan culture to be rescinded, so until then, Funakoshi was forced to limit his practice to his private time, and to keep the study strictly on the down-low, lest the prefectural education department catch wind of the fact that one of its instructors was defying the law, and sack him as an example to others. When the ban finally was axed in 1901, though, Funakoshi was able to open his own school for the first time at the age of 33. His chosen name for the school was taken for the pen name he had chosen for himself when he first began to write his own Chinese-style poetry. Choosing a pen name was a common part of the life of an elite intellectual in the classical Chinese world, assuming the pen name was supposed to give you a fresh set of eyes with which to view the world and express your views in verse. The pen name Funakoshi chose was Shoto, or Pine Waves, a reference to a piece of poetic imagery, the tops of pines swaying back and forth in the wind as though they were waves cresting on a beach. Thus, his early students took to calling the place where Funakoshi taught the Shotokan, the Hall of Waving Pines, and Funakoshi's style became known as Shotokan Karate. Now, Funakoshi's style was a bit eclectic. He'd trained in styles derived from Shurite Karate, but also practiced with and picked up ideas from other schools as well. However, his eclectic collections of teachings is not what Funakoshi is known for or why we're spending so much time with him. Instead, it's because of something Funakoshi deeply desired. He wanted karate to not only be popular in Okinawa, but in other parts of the empire. So Funakoshi rejoiced when, for example, the Japanese Ministry of Education approved the teaching of karate in Okinawan public schools but he didn't see it as enough that bureaucrats in Tokyo were finally letting people like him teach other Okinawans. After all, couldn't those same Tokyo bureaucrats learn just as much from the practice of karate as a kid from Shuri or Naha could? What makes Funakoshi important is that twice in his career he took it upon himself to go to the Japanese home islands, once in 1917, again in 1922. Each time he gave demonstrations, helped set up clubs, and certified instructors who he believed were competent to carry on his teachings. Perhaps his most influential trips were to Japanese universities, where he helped set up university clubs that could train the future movers and shakers of Japan in karate, and thus teach those future influential people some respect for Okinawan culture. During his trips, Funakoshi visited some of Japan's most famous universities, elite schools like Keio and Waseda, Hitotsubashi University, the government-run colonization school at Takshoku University, Chuo University, the elite Gakushuin, which trained the children of the peerage, and the prestigious government-oriented Hosei University, 
the name of which literally means law government, a clear indicator of the type of students it hoped to graduate. Each of these schools and more saw visits from Funakoshi. This was the tour that put karate on the map of traditional Japanese martial arts by exposing residents of the home islands to it on a broad scale for the first time. Of course, as he did so, Funakoshi had to make a few adjustments. Chief among these was a rebrand for karate. You see, until the 1920s, the word karate was written with the same characters that had been used for 2D, as in 2D Sakugawa. In other words, in other words, the kara in karate was written with the character for China's Tang Dynasty, meaning that the style was literally named Chinese Fist. However, Japan in the 1920s was an increasingly nationalistic place. After all, Japan had taken its place as a great power on the world stage after World War I, and that accomplishment brought with it a renewed celebration of Japanese culture and a renewed desire to assert the uniqueness of that culture. By contrast, Japanese opinion towards China was, to put it mildly, not great. Though there was, of course, awareness that much of traditional Japanese culture was borrowed from China, the going feeling was that Japan had improved upon what it had borrowed. As for aspects of Chinese culture that had never made it big in Japan, such as the religious practice of Taoism, well, they developed a reputation as backwards and barbaric. So Funakoshi decided to rebrand. He began writing the word karate with a homophonic character also read kara, the one for empty or void. So karate became not Chinese fist, but empty fist or empty hand, something both more descriptive and better suited to the zeitgeist of 1920s Japan. He also brought karate into line with the naming conventions of other martial arts by adding the do suffix used by judo, kendo, kudo, and others. That term, remember, means path and is supposed to connote the common feature of all modern budo, an emphasis on self-cultivation and discipline rather than pure fighting skill. Funakoshi was not the first karate master to emphasize that training could be used for moral self-cultivation. However, he also wanted to emphasize the shared goal of karate and other budo, so he was the one to begin referring to his practice as karate do. That decision, in the long term, has proven to be less successful than his others. Not every modern school of karate uses the do character. Yet most of them do still emphasize that karate, like other modern budo, has the goal of moral self-cultivation, not just learning how to kick someone really hard. Finally, Funakoshi was responsible for bringing into karate a system that, like so much else from modern Budo, was pioneered by Kano Jigoro as he developed Judo. You see, way back in the 1880s, when Kano had awarded the first Don ranks in his Q-Don system, he had decided that there should be some kind of marker for recipients of the prestigious position of First Dawn. He settled on a black obi, an obi being a traditional sash that had been part of standard samurai dress. In the early 20th century, however, Kano developed a new uniform for judo, composed of a simple pair of pants and a wraparound jacket. Obi tend to be pretty thick from top to bottom, and in the new uniform they were just too restrictive 
so instead Kano switched to a simple fabric belt. Over time, he added other colors to this system as a way to make training between two different dojos easier. This way, the first time a visitor came to a dojo, it would be very easy to identify the relative ability level of a specific partner, making it far less likely that someone with a black belt would end up going super hard on someone with a white belt and just beating the snot out of them. Kano's belt system has gone through some changes over time. For example, at first the lowest level was not a white belt, but a light blue one. Today, different national judo federations use slightly different systems of belt ranking. Pretty much the only constant seems to be that white is for beginners, brown is for someone close to reaching first dawn, and black is for anyone with a dawn. Beyond that, it depends on where you are, but the basic premise of being able to quickly identify an opponent's skill level remains the same. Since Kano was a member of the National Butokukai, he promoted the idea of colored belts in other budo. In the more traditionalist styles like Kendo and Kudo, the idea was never adopted. Though those budo do use the Kyudan system of ranking, there's no external marker of rank for practitioners. Others adopted the system in part. Aikido, which we haven't even gotten to yet for the very good reason that it hasn't been invented in this point in our narrative, uses only white, brown, and black belts. Funakoshi, however, took the belt system and brought it back with him to Okinawa Wholesale, where other karate schools started attaching onto it as well. Just as with judo, there's no standard ordering to the belts shared by all schools of karate, but there is a general agreement that white comes first, brown is right before black, and black is the highest. So if anyone ever told you that the idea of a black belt came from the olden times when people practiced so hard and sweated so much into their belts that those belts literally changed color, well, now you know that that's complete nonsense because, of course it is, that would be really gross. Who would want to wear that belt? Funakoshi Gichin's trips to Japan helped make karate into the international phenomenon it is today. The organization he founded to promote his style, the Shotokai, still exists, though Shotokan Karate split after Funakoshi's death. If you're wondering why, it's because the Shotokai follows Funakoshi's dictum that tournaments for karate degrade the practice by shifting the emphasis from personal development to pure sports. After Funakoshi's death, a group of Shotokan practitioners who disagreed with that approach broke off to form the Nihon Karate Kyokai, or Japan Karate Association, which does run and organize tournaments. Despite this split, Shotokan remains by far the most popular form of karate in the world. If you've got a legit karate dojo near your home, the odds are very good that it's Shotokan affiliated. The reason for this style's success has to do more than anything with Funakoshi's decision to try and popularize his teachings across Japan, rather than simply confining them to Okinawa. Indeed, Funakoshi himself attempted to situate his teachings as the most legitimate form of modern karate. He didn't refute his style as a distinct ryu or school of karate, in the way that other schools, Shorei-ryu, Goju-ryu, Shorin-ryu, and so on, did and still do. He just called it Karate-do, a sort of subtle declaration 
that in the same way that judo had preserved jujitsu and updated it for the modern world, he had updated karate and preserved it for the modern world. The future, he was asserting, would not be splintered schools with distinct teachings, but unification along the same model as judo, kendo, and kudo, a single curriculum with consistent standards across the entire country. However, resistance to this idea proved very strong. While Funakoshi provided a charismatic figurehead for a united karate in the same way that Kano Jigoro had for judo, he did not have as advantageous a historical moment to work with. The early 20th century on Okinawa was not the 1880s in Japan. Where Kano Jigoro had been able to ride a zeitgeist of mixing the traditional with the modern, Funakoshi was faced with a group of traditional Okinawan practitioners who were not interested in embracing a future associated with the country that had annexed their home. Indeed, while Funakoshi greatly pleased his Japanese adherents by embracing Japanese terminology for techniques and kata over traditional Okinawan words, he earned the hatred of some Okinawan practitioners for doing so. It's rather telling, I think, that the most famous memorial to his legacy is located not on Okinawa, but in Kamakura, on the main Japanese island of Honshu, in the Buddhist temple of Engakuji. Eventually, both Shotokan and some of the other karate styles joined the Butokukai, adding to that organization's credibility as the organizing entity behind the modern Budo. Others, however, resolutely refused to sign up. This is a tension really unique to karate. To what extent would it embrace inclusion in the family of Japanese Budo, and to what extent would it maintain a separate identity as a uniquely Okinawan and not a Japanese practice? Different teachers in different schools at different times have answered that question very differently. To this day, it remains a very powerful one. Speaking of the Butokukai, as the 1910s rolled into the 1920s, the organization continued its mission to standardize the practice of the martial arts. For example, in addition to insisting on the Q-Don ranking system, the Butokukai also implemented a standardized terminology for the highest level of practitioners. Initially pioneered by the organized kendo community, a three-part structure for grading the best instructors in Japan for each style was implemented by the Butokukai to further standardize instruction. Each level came with a title, Renshi, Kyoshi, and highest of all, Hanshi. To give you an idea of how hard those titles were to get, in 1925, the Butokukai published a register of all the practitioners of Kendo who had attained each rank. Across all of Japan, 238 people had attained the lowest level, Renshi, 58 had attained that intermediate level of Kyoshi, and only 18 had attained the highest title of Hanshi. This not only provided a way to reward the most dedicated practitioners of a given Budo, but, of course, gave the Butokukai even more power as an organization. Now it had the power to decide who the best instructors in a given Budo were directly. Now, you might think, why are we talking so much about organizational bureaucracy? I thought this was going to be a cool series, full of swords and punching or whatever. Well, my friend, this dry organizational bureaucracy is actually very important, because of what it enables the Butokukai to do. 
From the get-go, the Butokukai as an organization had a very close relationship with the Japanese government. It relied on Ministry of Education funding to get started, was literally built on land deeded from the government as part of Heian Shrine, and construction on it started at the same time that Heian Shrine was finished, and its organizers had connections to the government. The first chairman of the Butokukai, for example, was Watanabe Chiaki, who had made his career in government as colonial governor of Hokkaido and as governor of Kyoto. His successor as chairman, Kitagaki Kunimichi, climbed the exact same ladder. The Butokukai even had an honorary vice ministry within the Ministry of Education, and to underscore the connections between Budo and the state, that vice ministry was held in succession by Komatsu no Miya Akihito and Fushimi no Miya Sadanaru. The no Miyas at the end of their names are sometimes translated as prince. Both men were distant relatives of the Meiji Emperor and princes of the blood, direct descendants of the imperial family. Both men were also war heroes, veterans of the samurai rebellions of the 1870s, the Sino-Japanese War, and the Russo-Japanese War. So the Butokukai had very clear connections to the Japanese state. Thus, it shouldn't surprise you to learn that as the Japanese state descended into militarism in the early 20th century, so too did the Butokukai. It began first with a shift in message. As the tenor of Japan's national conversation became increasingly nationalistic and jingoistic, during the 1920s and 1930s, so too did the way in which the Butokukai promoted Budo change. Instead of emphasizing personal development and strength of character, Butokukai instructors began to emphasize the power of Budo to instill martial spirit in Japanese citizens and make them into good soldiers. This was, after all, the high point of the modern cult of Japanese Bushido the culmination of a process by which a philosophy to which only a small number of Japanese were ever expected to adhere, and to which, in reality, very few of those expected to adhere actually did so, was transformed by propagandists into a cult of patriotic loyalty based on samurai values of honor, discipline, and loyalty. Budo fit nicely into this propaganda. After all, the modern Budo were the disciplines of the samurai, updated for a modern age. A high schooler joining a judo club was the spiritual descendant of a Tokugawa-era samurai, perfecting his skill at jujitsu. Certainly, Imperial Japan was not the only state to reduce athletics to a subordinate of militarism. After all, there are all those famous videos of mass gymnastics and outdoor exercises that the Nazis loved so very much. In that sense, the militarization of the Butokukai fits well with the broader patterns of 20th century fascism. Just like the mass exercises of the Nazis, Budo could be, and was, used to cultivate a new man whose physical robustness and discipline would build a new future. By the same token, physical education could be used to cultivate new women as well, though those new women did not so much build as birth the future. Something we haven't really touched on is Budo training for women. Briefly speaking, the female Budo movement before World War II existed, but it was relatively limited in numbers. The Butokukai did endorse women training in Budo, but for reasons that had less to do with self-cultivation and fighting spirit, 
and more to do with the logic of ancient Sparta. Fit women produce fit boys who can fight and defend the empire. However, women budoka were usually confined to separate practices. After all, you can't have them rolling around on a mat with men doing judo. That would be improper. Instead, women practitioners tended to be shuffled into low-contact arts like kudo or Japanese archery. Perhaps no budo, however, was more associated with women than the study of the naginata, or halberd. Naginata-do, to this day, is dominated by female practitioners. Theoretically, the weapon's longer reach negates the height and upper body strength advantages that male opponents generally enjoy against women. The naginata as a weapon has been associated with women since the samurai era, though men had used the weapon as well. During the Edo period, the naginata first retained a reputation as being suited to women, but actual training for female samurai in how to use one during the Edo period was relatively uncommon. However, that reputation, that the naginata was a woman's weapon, meant that when the modern Buddha were coming together, naginata training was often split off from other weapons, with classes primarily, or sometimes specifically, for women. Anyway, as World War II began to loom on the horizon, the Butokukai and the modern Budo more generally were militarized to greater and greater degrees. By the time Japan entered into war with the United States, the Butokukai had embraced a vision of itself as the spiritual heart of the Japanese war effort. The Butokukai produced a monthly magazine called, appropriately enough, Butoku. By 1942, the magazine was replete with articles about how close the Butokukai's relationship was to the military, about how Budo instilled warrior virtues in Japanese citizens to make them into great soldiers for Japan's holy war in Asia, and about how Bushido and the warrior spirit were the heart of Japanese civilization. Less immediately propagandistic were the ever-larger columns of names of Butokukai members who had been killed in action. The organization itself went through a substantial reshuffle. In 1942, Tojo Hideki, at that point both prime minister and army minister, was also named chairman of the Butokukai. The organization was also effectively nationalized and placed under the joint control of the Education, Army, Navy, Public Health, and Home Ministries. Government control came with perks. In schools, Budo instruction became not just optional, but mandatory, which after all meant more sweet government jobs for practitioners. It also came with some pretty big drawbacks, because each of those five ministries had a very different idea of what the point of the Butokukai was. For the education ministry, the Butokukai was nothing more than an appendage of its larger physical education program. For the army and navy, Kodokan Judo was potentially useful as instruction for frontline troops and marines, but the rest of the Butokukai was not really that helpful. For the public health ministry, the Butokukai was completely vestigial, and for the home ministry, it was one more potential vector by which the central government could affect local goings-on. Across Japan and on a day-to-day -day basis, government control over the Butokukai actually meant pretty little. Instructors still taught the same basic curriculum, with little thought or room given to propaganda about the war. 
Indeed, perhaps the most interesting thing about the Butokukai is that beyond its hand in helping to bring disparate groups of instructors together, it was pretty far removed from the actual realities of daily practice. It did, however, provide one shared experience for martial artists across Japan, because when the Americans came in 1945 and saw that the Butokukai was a government-run entity that had been publishing all these things about the war, well, they promptly banned it. And I mean promptly. The organization was shut down before the end of September 1945. The next year, Budo instruction more generally was temporarily banned as well. We'll pick up the thread of post-war Budo in two weeks' time. Next week, I want to focus on the story of two arts that come into existence right around the time of World War II. For now, though, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Jeffrey Lynn for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for Fist of Legend Part 5.